All right. Oh, hey, look at that. I think I do this every time. I don't think I'm ever not going to do this. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, this thing is always, I, I like it. I like to be able to hear how loud I am. I want to make sure y'all can hear me. That's, that's a good thing. Well, take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter number 16. <laughs> All right. Hey, there we go. We're back. Well, y'all are only going to get half of Sunday school this morning. You'll get half of what you can hear and half of your kind of just whatever you'll figure it out there. But um, <laughs> if you can't hear me this morning or if the mic cuts out, we'll figure it out. It don't matter. It's just a microphone. If we didn't have microphones, we still have church anyway. So uh, they've been doing it for a whole lot longer w- uh, without microphones than, than with, right? And uh, But anyways, uh, Acts chapter 16, we're going to be looking this morning at uh, some divine deliverance. Uh, it's a great thing to know that our God delivers, our God always has. If we really think about it, from the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, God has sought to deliver his people, uh, not through their works, not through their goodness, but through his work and his goodness. And uh, Because that's the only way that we can have deliverance. If we could deliver ourselves, we certainly would, but we can't. If we could, we would, and if we could, we would boast of it. But We have nothing to boast in except for the cross of Christ, except for what the Lord has done and our hearts and our lives. So this morning, as we come to Acts 16, to help kind of set the scene, uh, we are looking at, we're going to start in verse number 16, and we're going to see, we're going to see how far we get through, um, <laughs> we never know, but uh, we're going to start looking at uh, Paul and Silas, it might say that it's uh, imprisoned as like little section heading, but what's taking place is God has called uh, them to go and to preach the gospel everywhere, they're now uh, continuing their journeys, and their missions, and they've um, received the Macedonian call, and they've ended up in a place called Philippi. Now, Philippi was a, um, a place, a, an outpost where the Lord was going to use to be a, ultimately an outpost, not just uh, as where it was, but geographically for the gospel's sake. And the Lord had uh, some meeting there for some specific people. Just a few verses beforehand, there was the conversion of Lydia, who was a, a seller of purple dye, and um, she was uh, saved. And we see the great news is that the Lord delivers her um, really from religion and into what true Christianity is. It says that the Lord had opened her heart, and uh, that's what the Lord does to all of us that are ever saved. It's the Lord's work. It's the Lord that opens our hearts, and that's what my prayer is this morning, is that God would open up our hearts to his word. Now, let's begin in verse number 16 as they continue preaching. It says, and then, as they came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, uh, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. What we find is a young lady who is need, uh, needing deliverance. She has deliverance of a couple of things. First of all, uh, that of a, a spirit. Uh, the idea is a, a, of a demonic spirit. This is a woman who's demonically oppressed and possessed, who is being exploited for the use of a couple of people who are called uh, her masters, if you will. This woman, this young lady, is a master to uh, her sinful condition as a, man, as a, as a person, as, born in sinful nature, but as well as to the demonic oppression and possession that she's experiencing and that she is also now uh, experiencing the oppression of these masters who are exploiting her to gain money. It's a sad thing when people use this sort of thing in the spiritual realm to try to gain money. It's not about money, not not a bit, but here what they're doing is they're using the demonic to uh, wreak havoc and gain influence and power and authority and ultimately using this poor woman and this poor young lady's uh, soul in her life. It says, though, as they, uh, the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Now, on the surface level, we look at verse 17, we would think, well, this young lady's doing a great thing. This young lady's walking around and, 
and through the power of this demonic spirit is proclaiming that God is God and that these men are there to, to preach about that God to them. But really, if we dig a little bit deeper, what we find is that there's an issue here, is that uh, what is taking place is that this young woman is being used to, to bring about uh, even some confusion in some ways because of what she said on the other side, the 95% of what this young lady has been used to say has been soothsaying, divination. The idea is what we would see. You ever see on the side of the road a little shack that says fortune telling, right, or crystal ball readings, all that garbage, right? Um, or, or how about you ever see in the newspaper where it says your sign, right, the sign, here's what, here's what your little Aquarius or your whatever. The, that stuff is, I'll go ahead and say it because a lot of people don't like it, but it's demonic, it's not right, it's not good and a Christian shouldn't have anything to do with it. Um, they tell you exactly what you're already thinking and what you want to know. They keep it specific enough to where you can grasp at it, but general enough to where it can apply to everybody. And so that's exactly what's taking place. And so people are being exploited by it, and people in our sinful condition and sinful brains will always be corrupted and will seek and, and will, uh, will enjoy the corruption and corrupted uh, truth rather than, than anything else. And so it says in verse number 18 what takes place after this. As she's going around and this is taking place, it says, and she, this did she many days. This takes place over and over and over, day after day, as Paul and his uh, band of married men are going out and preaching the word of God and are proclaiming the gospel and the good news of Christ. And all the while, while they're crying out the truth, there's someone else who's back there who's, you say, well, she's crying out the truth, isn't she? Yes, but what we need is not someone who's filled of a demon who's being exploited by the demonic world or by her oppressors, but we just need the word of God preached by these men. It says, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now we have to understand that what takes place with Paul and the apostles is that uh, we don't have those same sort of sign gifts today. The apostle Paul and Peter, they could do things that Brother Mike and I wish we could do, would love to be able to do, and all y'all probably wish that too, but we can't do it. And anyone who says that they can heal or cast out demons or raise the dead is a liar. And there are plenty who say that they can. If they could, then why don't we send them to the hospitals and we won't have to have them anymore, right? Why don't we send them to the nursing homes? Why don't we send them even to the graveyards? It's because they cannot do it. And so what they do is they preach a false gospel, and then what happens is they preach it, People give them money, and they say then, well, if it didn't happen for you, it's because you didn't have enough faith and you didn't give enough money. So ultimately, it comes down to works, and no matter what you do, it's just not going to happen, and you can't earn your way of salvation. They get richer, you get poor, and nothing good comes of it. Now, we think, well, that only happens in televangelists. You see, the sad truth is that that happens in small towns all across the land. It even happens in big uh, denominational uh, things where we've got places like Bethel out in California who promote this, this sort of thing. Even have a, a school where they're training young men and women to um, be prophesying, to prophesy and to, uh, they have a, a raising the dead or a school of resurrection, right? They have a school of divination where they do the same sort of soothsaying. They think they're being controlled by the spirit of the living God, but really they're being controlled by their father, the devil. And that's what takes place here. That Paul is grieved, and I believe he's grieved for a couple of reasons. He's grieved at the fact that this young lady is being exploited by these, by these older men for, for money's sake. Certainly he's grieved at the fact that the demonic world is fighting and is you know, winning battles over the hearts and lives of people, even this young woman's life. 
get grieved at the fact that this has gone on for days and is preaching and is ministering to the people and of the confusion that it can certainly cause because we often look at the early church and romanticize and think that they had everything perfect. The early church, if you go back just a chapter ago, they were having to deal with false doctrine being preached in, in, uh, in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. So there always have been problems amongst churches and doctrinally and practically and all these things that have to be addressed. And he's grieved by it, and it should grieve us. It should grieve us that people are oppressed. It should grieve us that people are being uh, fought and, and, and um, oppressed and, and possessed even by demonic spirits. It should um, grieve us to our hearts that there are people that need deliverance, not just from the physical world, but from a spiritual world. You know, a spiritual world where they are held captive by sin and, and, and death and all of these things, and only Christ can set them free. And notice as Paul is used by God during the specific time and purpose to call forth the demon out of her, and notice that it says, and he came out the same hour. Right? This is a, when God does something and commands this to happen, it happens just like that. He, he, he changes a life. But you think about this at your own salvation. When you got saved, you got saved, and it was for everything. And there was an immediate change. And that doesn't mean that you, you know, didn't uh, say a bad word if you hit your thumb on a hammer or a saw or anything like that. Right, brother? <laughs> right? It means that you, got, uh, you, you still can get in the flesh. But there is a progression of sanctification. But immediately, once you're saved, your life changes. Immediately, once God comes in, there is a difference that is going to be there forever. And so, in this, the response and the reaction of the woman, we, we're not told, this young lady. Now, I could imagine, much like many of the other people in the book of Acts and the Gospels who were healed, it probably is absolutely elated and ecstatic. We're, we're not told how long that she had been this way or been under this, but we've seen the pattern that everyone else in the Gospels that has been delivered of such has rejoiced and their life has been changed forever and they followed the Lord Jesus. Now, I would assume that that's exactly what takes place, but now look at verse 19. It says, And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, I'll put that here in a simple term. When they saw that their money was gone, they got upset. Right? And that's what happens. When the money is gone, when their power is gone, when the fact that they no longer have control over this young woman and that their career, you notice their career wasn't even built on their own work. It's one thing to have a little bit of pride over your own work and you making a living for yourself. It's another thing when someone else is being abused so that you can make money off of them and they still stay enslaved to you and that possession of the demonic spirit. And so they don't even gain from their own work, and now they say, well, we're not going to gain any more money, and it says they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, these men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. You can rest assured that in the first century and in 2021 where the gospel is preached that there are going to be plenty of people who say they trouble our city. It doesn't matter if it's a small town like here. It doesn't matter if it's a big city like, you know, Woodlawn or Galax, right? You, <laughs> right? But it, it, wherever you go, if you are preaching the truth of the gospel, there will be opposition. There will be those who want to take you to the marketplace and say that you're troubling the city. You know something? Preaching the gospel is troubling. It troubles the hearts of those that hear it who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should also trouble the hearts of those that do know him to, to be stirred up to action and, and to proclaim and to live uh, a life that is worthy of what Christ has called us to. And so they gather them up 
and it says that they are troubling our city. And in verse 21, they take it even further and say, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. That escalated very quickly. Right? You figure they've just spent several days preaching and teaching, and they have done no wrong. If anything, they've done good by delivering this young woman, and instead they're returned by being gathered up, accused of, of false teaching, accused of false works, and then they are rent of their clothes and are, command, are uh, commanded to be beat. It says in verse 23, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Now, if you read through the rest of the chapter, and hopefully we'll get through it, but at the end of this chapter, we find out that uh, Paul and, and Silas here are considered to be Roman citizens, and they were beat illegally, right? They were supposed to have trial, and they were supposed to have the whole judicial system. And so what ends up happening is at the end of this uh, section is that the Lord delivers them, of course, from the jail. Spoiler alert there. But after that, uh, the, the Romans look, and they are scared to death and say, please leave our city because we made a big old boo-boo, right? Now, so the Lord is ultimately going to deliver them, but God is going to use them for one more divine purpose, and that is the Philippian jailer here and, and his family. Now, let's look at this. In verse number 24, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Notice, into the inner prison. Don't just put them in prison. They're not in the waiting room. <laughs> They're not in a questioning room. They're not even just behind a the nice suite of the bars and stuff. No, they're in the inner prison. It's the idea of taking them into the bottom or the belly of the prison. And then to be shackled, there's several different ways that they would shackle them during this time. There would, of course, be the feet, because you can't run. There would be the hands, because you can't fight. And even a shackling even to the wall or even to a guard, so that way you are not going anywhere, right? It, it, it takes, you think back to, I don't know how spiritual y'all are this morning, but y'all ever seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, right? Okay, good, y'all are spiritual too. <laughs> and they're on the chain gang, and where they, they're all tied up, chained up together, right? And so that's the idea of what we're finding here. They're not going anywhere. There's no hope. They've been beaten, and their beating was not just like a couple of paddles that you got in school when you were younger or even a real bad whooping from mom or dad. This is a beating beating. They're left bruised and, and bloodied in this. I mean, they, they're bare back, ripped open to, to be beaten with, with clubs. And, and then they're placed into the stocks. And it says, though, their response is important. And at midnight, verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. You know, I, I, this is perhaps one of my favorite verses and passages in the book of Acts, but really in, in, in Scripture where we find how God's people respond to adversity. Here in America, let's just be honest with ourselves, we are comfy and cozy, right? Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a truck driver who was from Canada. The reason why he was able to be in Danville was because he's a truck driver. That's the reason why they were allowed to leave the country. And uh, he shared with me some things that I had already been reading about how many Canadian churches are being targeted and shut down, pastors facing fines, some even being jailed and, and all these things. And share with me about this and how they respond, yet still with trying to meet. How about this? You read Fox's Book of Martyrs or, or Jesus Freaks and many other books like that that tell the stories and the accounts of those who have been uh, martyred or, or beaten or jailed or, or uh, all these things just for being a Christian like you and I. 
and they would sing and pray many times and, and witness to their captors. Why? Because they love Christ. Somebody cuts us off in line at, at Burger King, right? We're ready to lose our religion. And we think about this. If we were ever in this place where we were simply living our Christian lives and sharing our faith, and then we were brought before people, accused falsely, and beaten, and then placed in the innermost part of the prison, we are probably not, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know that I'm responding the way that they are. I certainly would love to. I'd love to be spiritual enough this morning to tell you, oh, yes, I'd be in there just a singing and a shouting. No, I'd probably be holding my wounds, crying, upset, even angry or fighting. You see, we don't like the uncomfortable, and they're facing all sorts of uncomfort. Their uncomfortableness is past just being a little hangnail. They've literally bloodied and bruised, and they're down in the dungeon, and their response to this adversity is that they sing and they pray to the Lord. Notice, it doesn't tell us what they prayed. I don't even know that they're praying for deliverance at this point. Paul is later going on to, to write that it, it would be to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and that whether I, I die, well, to, for me to die is better off for me, but for you, I, I wish I could stay because you need me here, but, but whatever happens, it's all for Christ. It's all for his glory. What an attitude this is. In the middle of all this, that they are focused on praying. If there's one thing the early church had, it was prayer. They were powered by prayer, encouraged by prayer. I mean, everything was based upon prayer. And now you can read statistics about how often we, we pray and all those sorts of things. And we can get pretty discouraged about it and feel real terrible. If you want to develop a prayer life, the easiest way to do it is just to start praying. Right? If you want to be better at reading your Bible, easiest way to do it, read your Bible. Right? <laughs> it just takes discipline. It's a difficult thing. Now imagine the discipline it takes to be in this situation, and they pray. You see, back earlier in the book of Acts, when some of the first persecution happened to, uh, to John, uh, I believe it was, John and Peter, what happened is they are in jail, and while that's going on, the rest of the disciples and believers in the town are gathered together, and you know what they're doing? They're praying. And shortly they'd be delivered, and, and they have rejoicing, and they have much rejoicing, because even if we were to ever find ourselves in a situation where we are jailed, beaten, all these things, we still have every reason to pray. We still have every reason to sing. If I face the worst of the worst that the government could give to us or the worst that any, uh, any enemy of mine might give to me, it is still greater than what I deserve. Right? I, we deserve and I deserve, hell, I don't deserve any goodness of God. And so during this and in this, what we find is the proper response to persecution. It's to keep on praying. It's to keep on praising. And really, we find, too, and the prisoners heard them. I believe that there's some preaching probably going on, too. And by the way, with the prayer and the praising of God, it, it can bring a lot of preaching. Because in your prayer life, I don't believe that they're sitting there and their heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Right? They're, they're, they're doing everything they can to pray. They're praying out loud. They're praying the power of the Holy Spirit for God to do great things, and they're probably even thanking God that they were counted worthy to be persecuted, that their lives were worthy of it. And then they're praising, they're singing. They're singing psalms and songs that they've known since they were a kid about who God is and what he's done, and the other prisoners hear it. See, I think a lot of times what the lost world is looking for and what they always say is, we want authentic, we want real, and a whole bunch of churches try that and try to be that in a different way. 
if we would just actually know what it means to pray properly, and I'm not talking about the right words, I'm talking about the right heart and the right attitude, that we weren't ashamed to pray, that we weren't ashamed of what it meant to go to the Lord in prayer. We, we just poured out our heart before God as they're doing here, and that we would sing praises that other people might hear us. Sometimes you walk in a Baptist church, if you sit there and during the song time, right, if you've been to visiting, visit other churches and things, it, it, you find this. You got the few who are the loud singers, right? Good, bad, or ugly, but they're going to sing loud. But you've got a whole bunch of others. They're going to hold to him. They're just going to look around. You see, if you want to encourage your brother or your sister in Christ in the pew next to you, the pew away from you, or the visitor that's in here, you know the best way to do it? Actively participate in the worship of God. Whether you're in a dungeon or in a pew, in a church, in a, in a, in a wherever. To actually praise God properly. What an encouragement this would be. That others might hear it. You see, there's prisoners in this community, whether you know it or not. There's prisoners who were held captive to sin, to drugs, to alcohol, to, to just their way of life and living. And they're looking when they come in here for a way out because they don't know anywhere else to turn. And the last thing they need is for us to mumble the word to amazing grace. If we've been changed and saved by amazing grace, we ought to sing like it. We ought to pray like it. Now, verse 26. This whole chapter has been an awful lot about suddenly, right? Suddenly, in the same hour that young lady was delivered by the divine hand of God, but then here, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. That's a big one. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. It would be the idea if you went to a prison and the whole place just quakes, the foundations shake, the walls are kind of crumbling, holes are in the walls, the bands off everything. The earthquake is so severe that it says their bands are loose. Uh, the idea is that they're no longer bound by anything. The prisoners one minute are bound listening to Paul and Silas squawk their praises and, and singing songs, and the next minute nobody's got chains on them, and they're looking around going, what do we do here? We haven't experienced this before. And in verse 27 it says, and the keeper of the prison, and he had never experienced that before either. His response, awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had been fled. The idea is that this guard, this jailer, is there just to keep watch. He's asleep on the job, first of all, but he couldn't have stopped the earthquake anyways. Right? God was going to do what God was going to do whether he was awake or not. He could have been in there looking at him or sore, drawn, anything, God was still going to do what God was going to do. But what happens is this jailer wakes up and sees the doors are open, the chains are gone. He's just assuming the prisoners are going to escape because there's more of them than me. And it would be better off for me to die a noble death of killing myself, falling on my own sword. What a terrible thing. You see, earlier in this chapter, verse 16, and all the way through, we find the young lady who's held and possessed by the Spirit. She's under captivity. But this jailer, he's captive as well. He's captive to his duty, captive to the Roman guard. He's captive to trying to hold his honor. But all the while, he's really got no hope. And here's what happens. He goes to, to, to give this, himself this honorable death, at least he thinks it would be. In verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. 
Now, if you were to go to the local county jail and you were to take off all the prisoner shackles and open up all the doors, probably not going to have this happen, are you? So people's going to, they go, I might be a fast runner, but I'm going to give it a shot, right? (laughs) And here's what happens. Paul says, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Imagine, it says in verse 29, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. He fell asleep hearing them sing and pray. He's wakened by this earthquake of God. And now he hears him cry out, don't kill yourself. We're all still standing here. Do yourself no harm. And he calls for light to come in and check everything out at this point. And he falls down at their feet trembling because the earthquake, the things that he's seen, the things that he's heard, his response to them, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's many commentators and stuff who question, well, what does he mean here? Is he meaning just how do I be saved from the Romans who will maybe kill me if you guys escape? Or is he asking the deeper question? I believe the question is both. I believe he's certainly asking, how do I be saved? Because he sees no other way out. He was at the place where he was ready to kill himself, thinking it would be an honorable death. He thinks there is no hope at all. Now, you don't have to go to a big city to find people who don't have hope. There's plenty of people in this area who have no hope. Plenty of people, maybe even in the church this morning, who feel like they have no hope. That they're at their end of their rope. They've got nothing else that they can cling to, nothing else they can do. And they're asking the question, how can I be saved? The idea of being saved is, of course, we think of a spiritual to be saved by, the, uh, by trusting in Christ alone, by the shed blood of Jesus. But the idea is to be rescued, to be rescued from a situation. And when Christ saves us, he ultimately rescues us from sin, death, hell, the grave, the, our own plight, even uh, against the wrath of God himself. But we also find here that he needs rescuing from everything in his life. It says in verse 31, the answer, and the answer is still true today. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. What we find is belief. Another fancy word of saying belief is faith. It's to trust, to put your trust on the Lord Jesus Christ in Christ alone, because there is no other hope for you. And thou shalt be saved. Does Paul or Silas here give him any other stipulations? Does he say, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and walk down the aisle and, and sling snot and tears and sign, the preacher, sign a card and shake the preacher's hand, right? No, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't even say, if you believe in the Lord Jesus and you're circumcised or baptized or catechized or any of those things. No. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is no other stipulation except putting your trust in Christ alone because there is no other hope. This is a great promise, not just for the jailer, but for all of us here today. And if you're saved today, you go, well, I've heard that before. I already know that. Yeah, well, it should bring a smile into your face where you're ready to pray and to praise God some more. Because looking around, ain't none of us in shackles. This don't look like a dungeon to me, right? It looks pretty good. And here's what happens. The question comes here, and some of our Presbyterian friends might get this verse a little confused here. It says, and thy house. What happens is there's a lot of, a lot of folks who, who I love. I, I've got a lot of friends who would look at this and say, well, that means that the jailer trusted on Jesus, and because of that, the rest of his household was elected or saved too. All right. Well, how about this? If your grandmama was saved, does that mean that you're saved and you didn't have to trust on Jesus either? No, that's not what that means at all. What this means is implying that the gospel is going to be preached and that his whole house would be changed because 
I can tell you this, if a husband or a father of the house who is supposed to be the head of the home gets saved, it radically changes the whole family. I've watched that in my own life, my, my family growing up, how, how I was raised. My mom took me to church. My dad didn't. My dad was a big old tattooed heathen. He's still a big tattooed heathen, just a save on <laughs> right? <laughs> anyways, my dad lived a rough life. He was, he was yeah, anyways. But, but uh, the, the Lord saved him. And when God saved him, everything changed. And, and the Lord has used that in, in a tremendous way, and he's not the only one. God has been doing it since here. Even go back further in the Old Testament, you look at a guy like Abraham, kind of changes the family. Isaac, Jacob, all the way down the line, go back to Noah. Right? When it changes, when the man of God, of the house of God, is, is changed by Christ, changed by faith, everything will be affected. It says, verse 32, you go, well, how do we know that they didn't just inherit it? Verse 32 tells us, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house meaning they had to hear the gospel too and believe themselves to be saved. They didn't inherit it just because he got it. And so this means if you're younger today, if you're that second or third generation churchgoer here or, or, or second or third generation Christian, the only reason why that you're called a Christian today is because you yourself have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been saved. Not because grandmama or granddaddy, I don't care if they built the church and gave all the money for it. It don't matter. Right? It, it is about your personal relationship with Christ. You are either in Christ or you're out. And so, and, and they preach, and it says, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, uh, and, and or their wounds is the idea, and was baptized, he and all his house, straightway. I love that. They immediately follow in believers' baptism. They immediately are committing themselves to Christ. And these are people who were originally pagan people. The, the, and they have been changed literally in an instant, in a moment. And because of what Christ has done for them, they are literally radically willing to follow him. That's what baptism truly is. Baptism is not to be saved. It's because they are saved. They were saved when they put their trust in Christ. Now they're being baptized in Christ. The idea is that they are identifying their entire lives now, not with being a Roman anymore, but rather with being a disciple of Jesus. You see, a lot of times we can, we can make idols of different cliques and things that we belong to. Ultimately, what we need to belong to and what matters above all else is if we belong to Christ or not. Moving forward, verse 35, or let me back, uh, sorry, verse 34. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. There's some serious rejoicing taking place there, isn't it? I mean, they, they've been rejoicing since they were in the jail cell, but now they're rejoicing because God has used it to not just free them out of jail, but rather to to have souls and a whole household saved. And when we look at this, I believe that this is really helping. This whole chapter is establishing the church in Philippi. Right? This, is, this is church planning in action. You want to start a church? Preach the gospel. You want to grow a church? Preach the gospel. God will do what God does. God will set the captive free. God will, uh, with his divine hand, deliver those who need deliverance. And now as this comes to kind of a close here in this chapter, it says in verse 35, And when it was the day, the magistrates sent the surgeons, uh, uh, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into a prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? 
Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the surgeons told these word, uh, words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia, who had been saved in verses 13 to 15. And it says, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Paul is not just a preacher. He's a pastor. He's not just a traveling evangelist or a traveling missionary. He's someone who has a heart to see disciples made. That's what we need. It's easy to make converts. It's a different ballgame to make disciples. We don't need a bunch of empty-headed converts running around not knowing what really to believe about Christ. We need folks who know Christ in the head, the heart, so that we, their hands will go and serve him and be the hands and feet of Jesus in their communities. We need disciples to be made, and what Paul does here is he goes and follows up with the same person, the same people that he had just been able to see, trust in Christ, and he wants to make sure that they're set straight. What's he even going to do later on is write to that same church, and he wants to make sure that they are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if you've been recently saved, or if you've been saved for 150 years, what you need today is to do the same thing that this young lady had to do, what this jailer had to do, and that is to be delivered from our sin and to put our trust in Christ alone. To every day wake up and determine, am I going to trust Jesus all day today? Because if I can, then if the worst thing that happens to me, I can still pray and I can still praise God. I can pray as loud and sing as loud as possible because God is still God and God is still good and God has delivered me from my past sins, from my present sins, from my future sins, and one day I will be with him forevermore to be ultimately delivered from this sinful, sin-cursed world, body, and mind. Today, as we bring this lesson to a close, I hope if there's one thing that you get, it's this, trust in Jesus. Because when we trust in Christ, regardless of circumstance or the setting, he is enough. We don't need everything else. If all we've got is Christ, Christ is all we need. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Grateful to be able to study your word. Grateful to look and see how you've always been in the business of delivering your people. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to put our full trust in you and to be able to rejoice, and to, to pray to you and to praise your name for all that you've done for us. God, that we would not be ashamed of your gospel, of your truth, of your work in our lives. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us now to prepare our hearts for this uh, upcoming service, Lord, that you would reach down and touch us, and, and Lord, that we would um, just be filled by you in your presence and your power today. And God, that through the preaching of your word, that you would do the same thing that you've just done in this chapter, that you would bring your people to praise you, that you would get the glory, and God, that you would change hearts and lives, Lord. Help us today to trust in you and to uh, give all these things and all of our cares and our concerns and lay them down at your feet. Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you now for this time. Watch over us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, take a pause.